We hope you've enjoyed this season of 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan. Like so many of our innovative initiatives and programs, this podcast is made possible by the generosity of our supporters. If you like what you've heard, please consider making a gift so we can continue to provide best-in-class programming from the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas, including future seasons of this podcast. Visit jccmanhattan.org slash 76-West to make your gift today. Thank you for your support. Welcome to 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. Today we're listening to a discussion between author and host of the JCC Conversation Series, What Everyone's Talking About, Abigail Pogrebin, and JCC Executive Director, Rabbi Joy Levitt. Why does there seem to be a Jewish holiday every minute? And what makes these holidays so powerful and urgent in this modern moment? Journalist Abby Pogrebin asked these questions of over 60 rabbis and scholars, taking a deep, personal dive into the Jewish calendar for the first time, researching and observing every ritual and fast, no matter how obscure. The resulting entertaining, humorous, and honest book was My Jewish Year, 18 Holidays, One Wandering Jew. And on March 15, 2017, Abby told us where the journey took her and how she was changed by it. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. So let's just say it right. This is a weird place for both of us. Abby usually sits here. She's, right? Or you're always sitting there. Are you sitting in the place that you normally sit in when you interview people? You want me to switch? Yeah. Are you confused about what's happening yes, tonight? This is throwing me. Oh, my goodness. So as many of you know, Abby um, moderates an extremely popular series, what everybody's talking about here, and she does the asking. So I think we're both a little off tonight because um, you're going to tonight do some of the answering about this unbelievably special book, which we're selling afterwards, I hope. I hope. I hope. But all of you need to to take a look at it. it um, I found it deeply profound. And it's actually an honor to be able to push you a little bit on some of these questions. So let's start with the obvious. Every Jewish holiday? <laughs> like, I get a better Seder. I get a more meaningful Yom Kippur. But Ta'anit Esther, what was the motivation behind your decision not to go only deeper, but to really do this so comprehensively? So I first have to stall with thank you. Um, (laughs) Because Joy has been a great um, mentor of mine and has given me, she made my dream come true, giving me a talk show at the JCC. So thank you, Joy. In addition to being a remarkable rabbi who is in this book in in a beautiful way. Um, Answer the question. Answer the question. I just also have to quickly thank Jane, though. (laughs) You do. um, As I lose my mic. What is happening here at the JCC? Um, Jane was an incredible editor and a demanding one. And this book is a quite expanded uh, version of the series. But it is there is no book without the forward. And so I just want to give a big round of applause to an incredible, incredible editor. Thank you. 
Um, in terms of the why, um, first of all, I'm one of those people, if I take something on, I want to do it to the nth degree. Um, and that's just my own neurosis. But I also felt very strongly uh, about what was missing in terms of my, where I was ignorant and why it bothered me. And I would kind of look over at, at observant Jews, and, and I don't just mean ultra-Orthodox, I mean anyone who lives in what I consider an observant life, and I now know that spans quite a spectrum, and kind of see that there was a, a roadmap that they had in their year that, from my vantage point, looked meaningful. And it also looked very interesting. And I was frustrated by the fact that I didn't know what they know, and that I wasn't sure, were I to test it, that it wouldn't deepen um, and add to my life in a way that actually was worth doing. You know, there's, you know, Gretchen Rubin, who's actually a friend of mine, wrote The Happiness Project. And there, I didn't want this to feel, and hers, hers was not a gimmick, it was a real pursuit. But there is something similar in the sense that as I turned, was about to turn 50, which I, you know, don't admit readily, um, there was a sense of kind of, is this all you're going to feel? And is this all you're going to know? And I did come at it through a Jewish prism because that's just been my exploration for the last 12 years in a very unexpected way. And I felt like if you're going to do this, you really need to hit every mark because the, there is an architecture that exists, and I don't want to miss. I don't want to miss a beat. Wait, I want to go back to the in a very unexpected way. Got two Jewish parents. Were raised in a Jewish household. Why so unexpected in the last twelve years? So definitely Jewish, but more. Uh, that's a little uh, a little more complicated than just Jewish. Uh, my father, whom I adore, is what I would call a red diaper baby, and his religion was kind of bagels and communism. So it wasn't necessarily... Could I... I mean, if I could see you, I would ask for a show of hands of how many people for whom that's true, bagels and communism. They don't... You won't but, have to out people. But Yeah, well, there are a few... Oh, <laughs> my well, father your father is being put out. The okay, you can put the lights back down. <laughs> there, are, there are more... Of those on the Upper West Side, right. I no, suspect there are people good that are observing Tanit Esther, but maybe right. I'm wrong. Right. And I would say that my, my father had his own arc and started to study Torah and be in a prophet's group, but much, you know, much later in life. So uh, we were not getting our Judaism from, from Bert. And in terms of Letty, many people know that she was raised very observantly in Queens. She had a seminal experience when she was not permitted because of her gender to say Kaddish for her mother, who died when my mother was 15. That seminal event really um, was a breaking point for her in terms of the tradition and the fact that her religion could, in a sense, turn its back on her at that time. So she turned, its back, turned her back um, and didn't come back to it, which she did very strongly, as you know. There was a gap where we had home-based Judaism Definitely went to two seders. We went to the high holidays because that's where she felt she needed to be at some synagogue, but we didn't belong to one. And, um, and we had Hanukkah. That was the extent of it. We lit Shabbos candles when we were home. But there was really no education. I was not a bat mitzvah. And frankly, it was not a priority in my life. Um, and so the, there, I, began, I began to sort of look for it, need it. Do you feel remember the moment when you thought to yourself, uh, there's something missing 
Because you had a yeah. rich New York Jewish life. I did. I was right? not deprived of, of richness nor I mean, Jewishness. The, the cultural Judaism in the ether. It's everywhere. Right. right. And one of the things um, I discovered when I wrote my first book, Stars of David, and that was obviously about famous Jews, um, but it was there were 62 machers in that book, and I could count on one hand how many of them had held on to their Jewish education or their rituals. Mm. And that that was a you know an, an interesting data point. You can't I think extrapolate it for all all of Jewish identity, but it was an important data point of there was you know a significant swath of public of, of public figures or high achievers had not incorporated or felt the need to maintain their Jewish identity as part of that public life. <clears throat> but to answer your question, it really turned for me when I had my first child. When my son Benjamin was born and we put this tiny or kippah on his head, it was actually overwhelmed his little head. And you know, the Moyle has you pass the baby from one generation to another. And it really was one of those moments where you say, would I be able to explain this to him? What we're doing right now, the beginning of our Jewish family and look how little I understand. And that was kind of a moment where it was a little bit of a gauntlet had been thrown down and I said, I need, I need to understand this. But that was 1997 when he was born. And then you get distracted and you get back to your journalism and your work and your friends and your life. And bit by bit, I would say this began, this began to be kind of a, a tapping on the shoulder for me. I didn't count the number of people you interviewed in, um, in Stars of David, but it's 63 rabbis you interviewed for this book. Thank you for counting. Uh, uh, wow. An interesting number. And the reason I, I raise it is because many people on their Jewish journey um, go look for spa physical spaces, either their homes or their synagogues or their JCC. And while you inhabited all of those spaces on your journey, you started not so much with physical structures, by, but by learned guides. You sought out, I mean, this book is a who's who of rabbis and teachers um, throughout the country. And, and they all took your call, which says something, I think, extraordinary about you. you. Um, but you wanted to talk to them which also says something about you. And I'm curious why you, why the, why going there as opposed to just going into those institutions and seeing what happens? Right. It's a great question. I, I feel like my sort of Jewish awakening has come entirely because of teachers. And I know that we're, we're all supposed to kind of find our way on our own. But for me, I, I need a guide to kind of open the door for me or to start the conversation. And I think we all know it's kind of like, you know, whatever Justice Potter's famous line about pornography, you know it when you see it. <laughs> I, I know when I'm turned on by an idea, by a challenge, by something that hits me emotionally because it's a question that goes to the heart of where I am. And that's where these teachers, that's, their, that's the skill that you all have. And I'm not saying this to blow smoke at a rabbi. <laughs> I think what you are, whatever the training is, and it obviously varies. I've talked to, in those 63, they span denominations, and I don't even want to call them denominations because some of them abhor the term. That's, that's a huge spectrum of approaches to, a Jew, to Jewish life or Jewish um, observance. 
but I chose teachers that I know make this tradition and these texts come to life in a way that make them urgent. And that was my bar. Like, do you make me think? Do you make me kind of excited? And I don't mean that in a bizarre, kinky way. Although I have to say Sukkot got very X-rated. Weird, yes. <laughs> got very weird. Um, but that that's why, and once you've had that experience, you, you I mean, at least I should speak for myself, I seek others. And I, I'm definitely a, a bit of a rabbi snob, I will admit it. It's not like every, I'm, I'm calling every rabbi. Um, there were plenty I didn't get to who I'm fans of. And I really ran out of holidays and time. And that's really true. <laughs> but I knew at the beginning kind of who my favorites are and why. So and, I, I'm interested in that process a little yeah. bit. You, you say you like put the calendar up on your refrigerator door. Did you know in advance everybody that you wanted to talk to? Because as you're reading the book, it looks like this person recommended, that person right. recommended, like it was right. a big Jewish conversation. It was. That, that, that brought you from place to place. Right. So I would say just because, you know, I, was, I used to produce at 60 Minutes where you had to over-prepare for every story. That's how I approached this. But Jane kept saying, you don't know where you're going, and that's a good thing. You're getting lost. and So it's a wandering Jew and a wandering like Jew. Like you really need to wander and you really need to not necessarily plan and, and balancing that because I wanted to be surprised and I wasn't sure where I was going for every holiday. And sometimes I was in a panic. I mean, in the fall, there's like 12 holidays within the space of two weeks. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't seeing my family very much. I don't know how you Jews do it. Um, but even that was a kind of a snapshot, I think, and, and we can get to that. I think there's purpose in that. I think there's a point to that. I think you sh you're, there's a reason why we're supposed to start our year in that almost a frenzy um, of, ho of holidays and, and milestones. But I would say that I did have my refrigerator schedule. I had my list of kind of my wish list of who I wanted to talk to. I was looking for kind of who to match with a holiday depending on where I thought kind of their, their wheelhouse was or their kishkas. And frankly, for the fasts, you know, there are six fasts. Um, most of them are pretty obscure. I knew I was probably going to the orthodox side for that because most reform and conservative rabbis are not necessarily either observing or thinking about or drashing about, you know, giving sermons about, you know, the 10th of Tevet every day. So I, I needed to know that I could go to Ethan Tucker and Mahon Hadar and he would pick up the phone and be able to talk about the 10th of Tevet for two hours. So, the, and then for something like Esther, I knew I could Only call. two hours? I bet you could have gone to do that. We could have gone for days. Yeah, Those Hadar guys, they could Anybody talk for a Anybody turn time. you down, Abby? Nobody turned me down. And I have to say that, I'm glad you raised it because it's part, it was for me part of the power of this experience, is that the teachers were not just willing, um, but kind. Nobody made me feel stupid. And... Nobody said, I don't have time for a neophyte. And they met me, kind of, they dove right in. It was almost like mid-conversation. They weren't giving me, you know, Purim 101. I had to do that for myself. But I would ask one question, and suddenly we were off to the races. And I, I do think there's something in the rabbinic or scholar's discipline or teacher's discipline that has oiled that machine for them. I don't think the average, even observant Jew, can make something come alive on a dime. Um, but when I called you for Yom HaShoah, and, you know, there, I think I actually want to talk to you about two holidays at the time, that was a conversation that made me cry. And I didn't tell you what I was going to ask you. And I think there is, 
the, th the thing that makes me feel sad about this book is that other people won't have the experience I did. I try to take you with me, anyone who picks this up, and people will have their own experience. But I wish that more Jews, frankly, or non-Jews, could pick up the phone and have these conversations. I, I think for all of the bemoaning, and there is a lot, I go to a lot of Jewish conferences, there's a lot of hand-wringing about connection and engagement. If people could be having these conversations, they would be plenty engaged. So you, you mentioned something about not seeing your family for those weeks during... What family? So, so Judaism is a <laughs> lot a about... Is anybody out there? Judaism <laughs> is a lot about family, and, and your family wasn't exactly on the ride with you. That's true. So how did that work? Right. So I have an incredible family, and they were hugely supportive. Um, they were cheerleaders, but they were not... Uh, co-wanderers. <laughs> and they knew what I was doing. I think they admired it. I think they got a kick out of it. I think there were some eye rolls for sure. Um, I did not want them to feel pressured to sign on. And I think partly because that wasn't a fair ask. But also, you know, Leon Weaseltier, who is, you know, very brilliant and very cranky, once said to me in, our, in an interview when I, I did, interviewed him for my first book, you know, Abby, I don't need anyone to be Jewish with. I'm, I'm Jewish enough on my own. I'm figuring mm. it out on my own. And I thought to myself, that's actually a new idea for me because Jews do things together, I think in a powerful way. We eat together. We mark things together. We pray together. We mourn together. There's very little we do alone. The fact that he said, I don't need, he was talking about his spouse, to be as Jewish as I am or even be, you know, worrying about her connectivity or Judaism was to me thinking, why am I so worried about other people? I need to just actually see my way through this and hope, which I think I hope has happened, that some of it rubs off on them. Um, that's, that is to say, it is hard to fast alone. It is hard when your family is eating pancakes on New Year's Day, which they're entitled to do because the 10th of Tevet fell on New Year's Day in, in the year I was doing this. Um, and you're not eating after, frankly, being a slightly inebriated for New Year's Eve, which is allowed in, in the Jewish tradition. It was hard. And I'm not going to play the violins for it, but it, it, there were many times where the difference of being a Jew is called out and affirmed. You know, you are not doing what everybody else is doing. And there's tremendous resonance in that, but there's also, um, uh, there's a lot to ask of you. Um, you, can't, you can't necessarily be thinking about all the things you can't do. You have to be not just, not necessarily loving, but finding the uh, significance and frankly, the payoff to some extent in doing it differently. Seventy Six West is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, roasting his own coffee and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabars. Respect the customer. Never ever stint on quality offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store on 80th and Broadway or visit zabars.com for mouthwatering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world-famous caviar. 
Zabar's ships to all 48 contiguous United States plus Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico. So there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabar's any day of the week. So here's the sentence in the book that most troubled me. Can you guess? Uh-oh. Just say it. I'm failing at Shabbat. Yeah. I'm failing at Shabbat. I'm that failing. True statement. So you attend services regularly. I do. You have Shabbat dinner with your family when everybody's around that with the traditional rituals that accompany such dinner dinners, you say the blessing over the candle, you make kiddush, you eat challah. And yet you write you are failing Shabbat. Do you think maybe your standards are a bit high here? And I want to dig a little deeper on this because this whole thread in the book made me made my heart break, actually. And I suspect you're not alone. I expect I suspect that there are lots of people out there that fail feel in some way that they're failing. What does it mean? What do you, what does it mean for you to say you're failing? Who is making you feel that way? And is there some way that Jewish life is just too hard to do well unless you're all in? And what is, what are the implications of that if you're not going to be all in, but you're going to be. Yeah, it's a great. These are a lot of great questions, and can everyone hear me? I feel like I'm sort of microphone challenge right now. I'm just bringing it closer. It's good. Is that um, another stall? This is, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think I think I'm glad you raised this. Um, you're absolutely right that I was if I was self-flagellating, which I was. I, I mean, that's that's me in many ways on a daily basis. Uh, Shabbat is high on the list. First of all, every rabbi told me, and in a way that frankly was news to me, that Shabbat is the most important holiday of them all. And that, first of all, sets off a light bulb in your head. I knew I couldn't write about 52 because no one would read the series or the book. Um, but I write about three in the book. And the chapter you're talking about um, was my wrestling with the stopping. I think it is extremely attractive, the older any of us get, to think about enforced pausing, powering down, doing less, not being on our screens, but also um, not walking out of the house carrying things and not being on the phone and all of the things that those who do it uh, now become second nature to them, but to do it that's in a later stage is much harder. And failing also at just kind of the the clearing out psychologically of all the things that I know that I'm not doing on a Saturday because it's Shabbat. Warming to that, you know, Yitz Greenberg said, this is not about a den denial. It's, it's, you're adding something to your life. And that, that was, you know, one of those things that twerks your thinking. And now that I have done a smidgen of it, which is to not be on email, I absolutely see how freeing it is. It's entirely freeing to know that someone is emailing me, getting an automatic message back, and now understanding that I am not looking at email and therefore they're not, they are forgiving that I'm not responding. Whereas six, the other six days of the week, I feel that pressure and I have gotten to the point where I'm not keeping up and I, have, I am disappointing people. Not that they need me so much, but 
literally every day I have five people saying, I'm not sure if you got my email, but. And that has an effect on you as a routine because it just means you're constantly on that treadmill. I don't have to tell everyone what it feels like to be busy. But there is something about the Jewish teaching about this holiday. You know, the, the 39 prohibitions which come from, you know, what you're not supposed to do in the building of the tabernacle. Um, some of those categories are very, you know, obscure and crazy. And some of them are completely apropos to this moment. And I think if I could even cross out, you know, five of the 39 I would have a transformed experience. So my frustration is not just that I'm beating myself to up Jewishly, like there's this Jewish standard I'm not meeting. It's that I think I'm denying myself something I would completely um, not only enjoy, but would transform me. Um, it's like my twin sister's always telling me to, that I should med meditate, and I know that she's right. But it's very hard for me to make the space for it, and I find every excuse for why I haven't at the end of each day. In terms of, though, something else you're getting at. And by the way, when I talked to Judith Shulovitz, who wrote the book on the Sabbath, she said, welcome to the club. We all are struggling with this. We are all struggling with our Sabbaths. And that she lives in the disappointment and the struggle, which I thought, okay, if Judith Shulovitz is struggling, it's okay for me. But the, the other point you're making, which I think is harder and true, is that for all the welcome I had during this series, and people said, come, come to my service, come to my prayer book, come to my shul, we're not so honest about the fact that that welcome, it would have been harder for me to walk into those spaces if I wasn't wearing the hat of a reporter, I think. If I was just the rookie walking in to, um, I, I'm not gonna name names, some of these places where it's all experts, they just are. And even Central Synagogue, which I think is extremely welcoming, where I am a member and a, a proud and devoted one, you, we all know the songs, and we all know the, the rituals, and when to turn for Lachado Di. And you realize that there are moments of when, when someone is feeling an outsider that we don't even notice. And so that's a long way of saying that, yes, I do think there is superiority among some in any religion, but I only know the Jews, where those who, who've got it, who know it, have this way without intending, probably, to make someone coming up late feel a little bit like you've already missed that train. And I, I think on, on, it, they are unconscious of it, but sometimes they don't realize for all the bemoaning of connection that you're never going to get more Jews in the tent if there still are these kind of, these subtle cues that you're already kind of out. You're, you're, you're not us. You're not of us. And the irony here is that it often really isn't about what you know, or at least not the deep thing that you know. And when I was a congregational rabbi, I, I'd hear this all the time. I don't want to come to services because everybody understands Hebrew. That was a sort of common um, misunderstanding because the fact that you could sing these songs was somehow an indication that you knew what they meant, which was simply not true. But if you don't know what they mean and you walk in, you kind of assume that, that everybody else knows what's going on. And I think that is that, and it, I think it's something for us to be worried about because we so over-authorize knowledge 
maybe not over-authorized. We authorize knowledge as a central tenet of the tradition. And what does that mean when you don't know? But, but don't you also think that without the knowledge, it's a little thin? I mean, in finding that, because I'm also one of those people who I don't want it to just be knishes and folk dancing. And I think sometimes there's that, whatever you're doing is great. And, and that's not a judgment. But I don't think it's why the tradition and the her and, and the religion has endured. I think about this a lot. You know, my grandmother didn't know how to read Hebrew and probably didn't know very much. I mean, she knew how to have a kosher home. Um, but she was very deeply Jewish, and she wasn't worried about it in the least. She was just connected. Now, I don't know whether that's coming from Russia <laughs> You know, having an entirely different experience. Um, but it was in her DNA, you're saying? It was in her DNA. Yeah. And and I don't know how you accomplish that. And obviously for our generation, you accomplish that by study. But I, I, do, um, I do worry about the barriers. And I do worry about whether... Uh, particularly, I think about this in, in terms of Hebrew school, right? Are we really so interested in these kids knowing stuff, particularly their 10, 11, and 12? Or are we interested in them doing stuff, living stuff, be, feeling like some connection and commitment to the Jewish people, which doesn't necessarily come from knowing all that stuff, right? But I guess I would counter that it's completely in integrated, I mean, that's what this holiday series showed me. The number of times that the holidays are saying to us, it's not just what about what you're feeling on this holiday. What are you doing? Correct. And that was something that I think is not necessarily communicated um, to the average Jewish child or the average Jew, frankly, in the sense that it's not just about there's this holiday, this holiday, this holiday, there are within those holidays questions and teachings that absolutely speak to your life at this moment. That's, right. that's where, to me, the education and then the decision or the choice, because ultimately what I think is so frustrating is how do we make our, you know, whether it's our kids or our peers, decide to choose this when ultimately it is a choice. And there are a lot of options up out there and, you know, there's a lot of interesting things out there. So why this? Um, to me, having gone through this and having the conversations I had, this opens up each holiday, actually, but it goes beyond the holidays, but there's your, there's your blueprint. Um, opens up a question that will surprise you because it meets you exactly where you are. You know, your husband, I will call out, said this thing to me when I interviewed him before Simchat Torah. And he said about the high holidays and Simcha Torah, which is, you know, when we complete the cycle of the Torah, he said that the holidays come around every year. It's the same holiday. It's the same prayer. It's the same, you could say that it's the same liturgy. You are in a different place. And because of that, the holiday changes, the teaching changes, the liturgy changes, the poetry. And it was such a simple idea and I'm so glad he said it to me in the fall, the beginning, because that's exactly what I saw proven again and again to me. Mm. That yes, you know, I know what, I think I know what Hanukkah is, but Hanukkah changed when my father-in-law was dying. Mm. 
And yes, I think I know what Passover is, but it was changing because Ben was going to college. My son was going to be moving out of my house for the first time. And this Passover, now two years later, my daughter is going to be moving out. So it's a completely different holiday. And Hanukkah, this year, my mother-in-law was sick. There's, and, and sometimes there's great joy when there was great pain on that same holiday. And bizarrely enough or intentionally enough, um, everything that's in that, in that, the, those teachings are, are completely relevant to what you're feeling. And that to me is missing somehow from our sort of institutional Jewish approach to our faith and our, um, and our kind of, and our calendar. Let's talk about food. Good. Let's talk about food. Sorry, we don't have any for you right now. You know, there is that, that, that famous thing like, you know, they killed us, they killed us, they killed us, let's eat. Um, you I thought they tried to kill us. They tried to kill us. They let's failed. Let's they eat. failed. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Um, you talk a lot about food in this oh, book. Oh, I do. I, I mean, really, you do? I, I didn't do. know. I'm sorry about that. You do a fair amount of fetching about I the do. fast days, right? We get it. You love to eat. Okay, okay. And I am convinced um, from the book that you found the experience of observing these fast days an important component of your year. Uh, hard, but you were determined to do it. Some of that's the obsessive-compulsive nature of Abigail Pogrebin, but, 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 but I believed it. I found it believable. But I guess I have a question about the idea observe, of observing a holiday not because you necessarily find meaning in it, but because that's what Jews do. Um, is that even a category for modern liberal Jewry? You got to a very interesting place about Tatnit Esther. We'll just do that holiday because it, we just... We just passed it. Understanding the fast is a way of reinforcing our need to support those around us doing hard things, I think you wrote. Esther asked her people to fast with her before she risked her life. So you found some meaning in that, and, and I guess your path to doing it beyond I'm doing it and I'm not failing at this was, was like I'm going to be in solidarity with her there. So I wonder if you can imagine continuing to do that. And if you were to, let's just take Tanit Esther as, a, as one of the remote, one of these quote-unquote obscure holidays. Michael Paley once wanted to teach a class here called The Holidays in Which Alternate Side of the Street Parking is, <laughs> is Suspended. I thought it was sort of brilliant. It was a way to get, you know, Shmini Atzeret in there. Um, would it be, if you were to continue to observe Tatnit Esther, and I'm not making any claim that you are, but would it be because of Queen Esther's struggle, a more contemporary example of that kind of struggle that would resonate with you and therefore you would use this holiday to remind yourself of that? Or would it simply be, I want to feel connected to a whole group of my people that do this today and know that I'm doing it simply for that reason? That's hard because honestly, finding meaning on those holidays takes elbow grease, uh, you know, emo kind of psychological elbow grease. And maybe it's because I complain about not eating, but to stay focused, if I haven't been raised with it, 
for those who have, I think they just feel like they have no choice, and there is something liberating about having no choice. Um, I'm not saying I'm for that. I'm not saying I wish I'd had that. But not having had it means it's a very conscious um, abstention, and and that means that I did need I I needed a nugget like a a, a, a buoy of meaning for each of these fasts. They weren't hard to find, but I don't think that they present themselves so easily, which is a long way of saying that I haven't, I will, I'm confessing here, there are other holidays I have maintained. Talk to me about Elul, definitely the dancing on Simcha Torah. But other than Yom Kippur, where I had already fasted before, I've not maintained the other fasts. And I feel, I feel some misgiving about it, and I'm not sure I wouldn't ever again. But what I have maintained is I, they are in my calendar. I know when they are happening, and what is alive for me is what I learned that they that they bring up, that they uh, the ideas around them, and that's not honestly just saying, well, that's my excuse. It's important to me to mark the times that other Jews are doing this, um, and not just only because of the ideas that these fasts uh, bring up or teach, but because of what you said, which is that. These are moments of great solidarity that, are, it is, that is kind of silent. You're not always knowing who in the world is with you on the fast of Esther or the 17th of Tammuz in the summer, which is a very hard time or, you know, to fast because everybody's doing summer things or obviously Tisha B'Av, but that's obviously more popular, popular among Jews. Um, but to know... Especially if you went to a Jewish summer camp. Right, no, I now know holiday. about all that. Yeah. And that was like the, yeah, the place to be. But in terms of something like the 17th of Tammuz, those ideas were so powerful to me that they, um, they have stayed with me beyond that fast. And it's, it's in my calendar. That's all I can say. So one last question before we open up to the audience. So in this year of, of observance... 63 conversations in synagogues throughout the country celebrating and commemorating either 18 or 19 or 20 holidays, depending on how you which number you yeah. liked and how you're reading it. And now, with some distance, looking back, what most surprised you? I guess... First of all, that the, the bottomlessness of meaning is very real. I understand now why this has endured as a fascinating thing, not just a meaningful one and not just, uh, you know, we haven't even talked about God and, and I'm relieved, but but obviously God is a huge part of this. Well, for that people. was a big opening. We're <laughs> no, going to have one more no, question. No, 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 no. Um, <clears throat> But I think what surprised me <clears throat> um, more than anything is that memory is actually a task. It's actually a directive. It isn't just nostalgia. M memory is demanding something of us. And that has changed my life in that without being too um, overdramatic about it. And along with memory, because I think they're connected, is fragility. One after a holiday after another was basically driving home the idea that you don't necessarily get another year. 
you may not even get another week, but particularly the way Jews look at it, you don't necessarily come around, as Rabbi Strassfeld, your husband, said, you won't necessarily get that next Rosh Hashanah. And knowing that and being aware of that without being morbid about it focuses your mind on what you have. It focuses your mind on where you are, how you're living your life, what choices you're making, whether you're a good friend. Am I a good parent? How am I with my husband? How would I be remembered? What have I left behind? To me, that's, those aren't questions that make me slip my wrists. They make me wake up in a way that has changed everything. And that was the surprise. Thank you guys so much. Thank you all for coming. Abby, thank you for being so honest and sharing. And thank you for writing this book. It's a treasure. Thank you, Joy. That was Abigail Pogrebin talking to the JCC's Rabbi Joy Levitt. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Music is by Peril Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And if you can, share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome, and be sure to subscribe for future episodes.